0: We know where we are in the debt cycle. We know where we are with energy. And so then it comes down to these sort of key points when there is tension in the market, when there's volatility in treasury. Okay, we've coming to a point. They either have to let the debt default or they have to print. The chance
1: that they're gonna let it default is like zero. Hello there, how are you all? Did you have a good weekend? We've just wrapped up an amazing few days here in Bedford. You can probably hear it in my voice. I'm a bit croaky, but we had Jeff Booth, Lawrence Lapard, James Lavish, and Ben Arp, all in my hometown for a sold-out live event. Off to watch the football, to watch Rail Bedford crowned as champions. We also had Lane Rettig there, Bradley Rettler, JB Leverton. So many people came to my little hometown of Bedford, which was surreal unbelievable has such an amazing weekend thanks to everyone who came anyway welcome to the what bitcoin did podcast which is brought to you by iris energy the largest nasdaq listed bitcoin miner using 100 renewable energy i'm your host peter mccormack and today i have the legendary luke groman back on the show now it's been a couple of years since luke has been on the show we've been trying to make it work in person but haven't been able to do it so we broke the rule again We broke the rule. We got Luke on, but there was so much we had to discuss with him. And with everything that's going on in the world right now, Luke dropped some quite frightening concepts, including the idea that we could possibly see 100% inflation here in the West in the next couple of years. Now, he does lay out the scenarios for where or why this might happen, but it's something that's been playing on my mind quite a bit since we did the interview. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this or try to enjoy it. Um, If you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do hit me up on email. It's hello at did.com. And hopefully I'll get my voice back in the next couple of days. All right. Enjoy the show. Luke, good to see you, man. It's been a while.
0: It has, been Thanks for having me back on, Peter. I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation.
1: Yeah, listen, we'd have you on any time. And we'd love to do one in person at some point and really grill you. But there's, there's been so much going on. Danny here has been... Bugging me to get you back on, so we we broke our rule. We, we'll do a remote show <laughs> just because you have so much value to add. Um, uh, a lot's happened <laughs> since we you. last spoke. The whole world has gone completely fucking mad. <laughs> In a nutshell, yep, yeah, yes, exactly. But we're both huge fans of yours. Um, we've been following your updates, your macro updates, and yeah, we got a whole bunch of questions for you. Um, but just to kick off with, last time we spoke. You said your allocation to Bitcoin was about 2% and we're intrigued to see if it's grown. <laughs>
0: uh, the short answer is yes, quite a bit. Um, so I think the last time we spoke probably would have been what, like, like 2020, maybe September like
1: 2020. That? Yeah. So that was, you said September 2020. Yeah. I think we've made 400 episodes since then.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So September 20, shortly after we spoke,
0: uh, I ratcheted up my allocation pretty meaningfully actually. Um, when it broke over 20,000 November of 2020, if you remember it was mm-hmm. Thanksgiving weekend here and I looked at my wife and I said, it, it went through 20,000 with such authority. Um, having been in markets a long time, I just said that's, that's meaningful. So. I ratcheted up my uh, uh, allocation, I bet at peak, I was probably in 2021, uh, I don't know, I was probably 40% at one point of my liquid net worth uh, between what I bought in 4Q20 and 1Q21, early 1Q21, and then what it ran to. Uh, That summer, June of 21, I actually sold most of it, uh, to be blunt, I paid off my house. I just figured, you know what, worst case, Love you know, it. I'm going to get debt free on this, you know, and again, having been around markets, the pace at which it had grown, you were seeing the Fed start to talk about, talk about tightening. So it's was just like, okay, you know what, worst case, I'm out of debt. So I did that still owned by 5% of my liquid net worth, uh, began adding back in the, at the end of 21 too early, of course. Um, but, uh, it is what it is. Uh and then have actually um again, having been around markets long enough, people always say, you know, you wanna what is it, the the, the famous Rothschild you know, you want to buy when there's blood in the streets, even if it's yours. Um having been around markets enough, watching what happened with the exchanges last year in the fall, that to me was sort of like a classic, okay, this is a liquidation and yes, some of the blood is mine. And so I actually reacted it back up pretty meaningfully. Um In really sub twenty again, Uh, so we're back to full circle. So love it, love it. You know, here here we go. So um,
1: gone full circle, but with no mortgage now.
0: That's exactly it. And yeah, my guess is now I'll probably have a little bit more uh, more discipline for, or more 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 holding power because I won't have that temptation of like, hey, well, I could just get completely out of debt because it's you know I'm largely completely out of
1: debt already. So nice, love it. So. Is this just you realizing this is an asset you can trade, or have you become more bullish on the asset and its role now?
0: They have become more bullish on the asset and its role as a neutral reserve asset for the people, and maybe at some point down the road, uh, it can become a reserve asset at the sovereign level. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, I think there's been some interesting work done on that uh, in that vein, uh, most notably by Jason Lowery, mm-hmm. uh, his new book "Soft War" and it, um, his his PhD thesis at MIT. Uh, but I have become, I had been aware and 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 a key underlying dynamic to the way my research is suggesting I need to think about the world is that we are in this unique period of time where we have our first bursting global sovereign debt bubble in 100 years. Um, And at the same time, we've got a peak cheap energy, I won't call it a crisis, but it's a dynamic. It's basically, it's not that we're running out of oil and gas and, and energy, it's that the stuff we use most of is getting more and more expensive to replace. And so there is sort of this secularly inflationary dynamic to just replace and keep our energy production flat of fossil fuels broadly speaking which is fine when you have a low debt debt debt-backed economy but it's not fine when you have a high debt debt debt-backed economy debt-backed currency. Uh, They're fundamentally incompatible and so when you have a combination of a bursting global sovereign debt bubble overlaid with a peak cheap energy dynamic. Uh, that's an ideal setup for what you want to own. What you want to be overweight are neutral reserve assets with an energy tie to them. Basically, you want to own assets with no counterparty risk that hedge inflation and have an energy tie. And historically, that was basically gold. Silver, sort of, because silver is kind of an industrial metal, too. And I would also argue that, you know, if you can't own an oil field, uh, which is easier <laughs> said than done, uh, literally own the oil field or, or the oil assets, they are reserve assets of sorts. Uh, but there's a whole number of reasons why that's inefficient, et cetera, et cetera. But they will do well in that environment that we do that. I just talked about peak cheap energy plus global cyber debt bubble. And i think between our conversation and some other conversations i've had with others in in the bitcoin world that really um you know over the course of 2020 i think went from zero to 60. because i i had owned you know two bitcoin since 2013. i actually owned 25 bitcoin back in 2013 and i sold it unfortunately so though all but two right. of it to uh help fund fftt so not unfortunately because i started my business it's been a great business and, and i'm doing what i love but Oh, well, I'll see. Well, I would have sold something else, not the 23 Bitcoin I sold. Say la vie. Uh So over the course of 2020, my understanding ramped up to say, okay, gosh, if I look at this objectively, this is an energy-tied reserve asset. You through my lens of how I was, what, what the research is telling me. Uh, and just began digging into it more, talking more. And so that, I think, has really been the key tipping point of there are elements where it does a lot of what gold does better than gold does um but it's really about having a neutral reserve asset with an energy tied to it to me it's that that proof of work dynamic that energy tied that is so critical because they there's this inflationary impulse to uh peak cheap energy they need energy prices to rise and so you want to maintain your purchasing power and energy terms and there is this dynamic of first bursting global sovereign debt bubble 100 years where they either have to let the debt default which is counterparty risk so you want own an asset neutral reserve asset no counterparty risk uh, or they're more likely they're going to print the money to keep the debt nominally solvent um but real you know risk on a real basis and we saw that in spades last year so that's a long-winded answer, I think. Which, uh, But I but I wanted to give sort of the background of the thought process of how that evolved from there to here.
1: No, I love it, man. Uh, do, do you have a gold allocation? Peter Schiff is listening. I do. Oh, you do? I do. Yeah, I haven't yet. And I've considered it a couple of times, but every time I just buy more Bitcoin, <laughs> <laughs> which hasn't always worked out to be the right decision. So this sovereign debt bubble you're talking about, And you say it's bursting, and then you say they will print to keep it going. But I've had a few conversations with Lynn Alden, who I know you know well, um, and I feel like we're yo-yoing towards possibly even much higher inflation. What's your read on the sovereign debt bubble? How do you think it's escaped, and can it even be escaped?
0: Well, it can't be escaped. It can only be worked through. And there's only two ways to work through it once the debt levels get high enough, and that is you default slash restructure or you inflate it away you basically cap yields uh central bank buys the debt caps yields lets inflation go and you inflate it away so your debt the gdp is back down to a low enough level um so basically you write down you you bondholders lose money on on a nominal basis or on a real basis basically uh, are the two ways to work through it that's I guess there's a third way, which is energy productivity miracle, right? You can get out of it. In fact, the UK got out of one. I want to say it was after the Napoleonic Wars. So like 1850-ish, you had a productivity boom. You just happened to discover fossil fuels and commercialize them. And you had this massive, unprecedented, historical boom in productivity that actually allowed the uk to get out of to earn its way out of without really having to repress without having to go off the gold standard uh so it is possible uh but you're talking about sort of because the debt levels as high as they are you know the 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 commercialization of nuclear fusion on a compressed time scale type of productivity enhancement so if you say we're not going to get this productivity enhancement and who knows maybe ai can help with that too i don't know let's set that aside if you set that aside, you either have to restructure a default on the debt or you have to print the money to keep the debt nominally, but nominally money good, but but declining on a real basis to basically inflate it away.
1: And is the print the is the print the most popular option because a, a traditional default uh, is much more damaging to the currency? So is it that when you print it away and there's a nominal loss to the bondholders, is that a more subtle way of hiding it?
0: yeah, it's a more subtle way of hiding it. Uh, it's It's a more subtle way of hiding it. These days when you talk about a lot of this debt being the underlying collateral of a lot of other assets, it almost becomes impossible to default on it, right? As you hear all the time people say, well, treasuries are the collateral and they are. That basically precludes the let it default option, which is actually really helpful from an analytical standpoint, right? Because we know where we are in the debt cycle. We know where we are with energy, and so then it comes down to these sort of key points when there is tension in the market, when there's volatility and treasury. Okay, we're coming to a point. They either have to let the debt default or they have to print. The chance that they're going to let it default is like zero. So then you can sort of scale your positioning, um, you know, into you know, ba- or in, and make your decisions based on that. And and so I think politically. Uh, not just politically, it's always been easier, but practically speaking, from the actual underlying structure of the markets now, uh, there's just no there's just no chance they can they can let it default, really. I mean, it, I can't say that there's no chance, but the chance is so de minimis as to be, I think, meaningless.
1: So do you think we're uh, at risk of going through a decade of inflationary issues? It's something Lynn has talked about. She said to me the story of the next decade is going to be inflation
0: absolutely it's i i think we are going through and it really the the length the length of time is somewhat dependent on the rate of inflation and the ability to keep the population docile uh uh tricked for lack of a better word about how, what the actual rate of inflation is uh but ultimately i you know back in 2021 april 2021 i would say we did a report for clients and we looked at the, we said, okay, the last time debt to GDP in America was as high as it is after COVID was after World War II. And what we did was pretty straightforward. We capped yields at 2.5% of the, tenure, uh, the, the 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 Fed did with yield curve control. And they let inflation, they let real rates go to negative, I think in the United States, I think they went to negative 13%. So basically, your inflation rate was 13 points over uh, the yield on whatever they were using, whether it was the front end of the curve or the back end of the curve, doesn't really matter much. uh, It's a pretty flat curve. Uh, And the point is, from 45 to 51, U.S. debt to GDP went from 110% down to uh, 55%. And then they did this thing called the Treasury Fed uh, Accord, where basically at that point, they said, okay, now we're going to go back to being separate entities. The Fed's independent again. They're going to set policy based on what's best for the currency, not what's best for the government. And away we go. So we said, let's use that analog for now. We're at 130% death to GDP as of April, 2021. We let's, our, our view was that they needed to get that number to seventy to eighty percent debt to GDP because that was sort of, in in my view, the last time the Fed was able to run a pseudo normal Fed tightening cycle without really blowing something up remarkably fast. And so we said, okay, we need to take debt to GDP down by fifty to sixty percentage points, and let's say they do it over five years, like they did after World War II what would that entail holding everything else constant in this relatively simple model and what we found was that you needed five years four to five years of call it 12 to 18 percent annual inflation uh just to get it there so that implies two things number one that level of money printing number two that level of uh keeping the population uh, um happy keeping the bond market still, right? Basically you're, you're, you're holding the bond market down and, 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 uh, you, 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 you're putting the bond market to sleep. You're killing the bond market in real terms. And there's a number of reasons why, uh, from a capital control perspective in particular, that was much easier to do from 45 to 51 than it would be to do now. And so when you lay it out that way, it gives you two conclusions. Number one, Inflation's the way out, and that gives you a sense of scale of the amount of inflation for the period of time that would be needed. Uh, but then number two, it highlights the difficulty of actually doing that in the extremity of the policies that would have to be put in place to make that happen. And so where you go with that is some people say, well, we can just do five, 5% five negative real rates for five years. And no, 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 you can't do it five years. Negative like, five needs to be like 20 years. Uh, 15 years and you say okay well can we do it faster that's probably what this conclusion tells you right is is it's it's going to be a surprise it's going it's not going to be 12 to 18 percent inflation for five years it's going to be it's going to be the Israeli situation in the early 80s which is 100 to 300 percent inflation for two to three years and voila you're done and I think increasingly think that's where this is all heading toward where they're just gonna to have to compress it. They're going to have to do sort of a real short term basically reset. Um, you know, jack up the monetary basis, hold the, you know, let inflation absolutely rip for a bit. Because otherwise, it, you can't without capital controls, you can't screw the bond market in real terms for very long before you lose control of it. And so you kind of get to the same spot either way, right? Like you can't sit there and go, well, we're going to take 10% of your money, Mr. Bond market for five years. doesn't work that way. They'll, 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 you know, they will instantly make that adjustment. If they get the sense, that's how it's going to go so that it, it becomes self-referential.
1: So hold on. So you're saying perhaps in the U S even in UK and Europe, we could see 100 to 300% inflation.
0: <laughs> please don't make that the title of this one no i won't
1: i won't but <laughs> luke woman says right exactly yeah but you, are you saying that's the um, risk that's that's a potential absolutely it's a risk yeah it's absolutely a risk um
0: and it's one of these things where you people say oh if we had that kind of inflation you know there's gonna be zombies all you're gonna need is shotguns and spam and you know it's it's an apocalypse and you kind of go israel did it for three years and, you know, you can call up a guy named Stan Fisher, who is a former Fed vice chair. He wrote one of the authoritative papers on how to manage the process. And he, w- <laughs> he was a Fed vice chair as recently as 2017 2018. He wrote a BlackRock white paper in 2019 about how to inflate your way out of the next crisis. You cap yields, you let inflation rip. Uh, with the head of the Swiss National Bank and a and a uh, former head of the Swiss National Bank and a, and a, and a Bank of Canada governor. So... The point is, is that it happened in Israel, Israel is not the United States, um, obviously for a number of different reasons from a size and from a economic complexity, uh, uh, dynamic, but from a standpoint of a first world nation where they did it for two, three years and like pretty nice place to go visit. It's a nice place to, you know, it's, it's, it's like the world didn't end it. Bondholders got screwed for three years and then you move on and we are getting to that point of the movie where bondholders get screwed on a real braces in a short period of time and we move on and that to me yeah i think it's i think it's possible and i think it's important to say that the longer they delay getting to the inflating it away part the more likely that becomes so in other words if we go back to 2021 i wrote that piece i said it looked like they were doing what they said they were going to do in 2019 which is you know cap yields let the debt go or let the inflation go get that the gdp back down uh it looked like they were doing what they did post-world war ii and then all of a sudden 2022 here in the states in particular it became a political problem it was an election year oh inflation no one cared about COVID anymore It was all about inflation and so suddenly uh it started to become problematic and they started fighting it which is on one hand, fine, but you 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 once the debt is there, once the deficits are there, you don't have the option of, like, well, I'm going to fight inflation now. No, no, your options are inflated away or default. And the more you try to fight the inflation, the inflation was the only thing keeping the government solvent. It's the only thing keeping tax receipts above where they needed to be to prevent really a debt death spiral in the western world and so when you fight the inflation what you're really doing is increasing the strains so that the only outcome then becomes the only possible way to get out of it at some point becomes 100 inflation for two years for three years that the more you right it's, it's like you know the more you delay you know You know, you're sick, you delay, you delay, you delay, you get to a certain point and it's like, okay, well, if you have gangrene in your toes and you, you know, you trade it early, great. But if you wait too long, at some point, the only thing to do is chop off your leg and they keep delaying because of
1: politics. This show is brought to you by Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. And they are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us. So they're such a great fit for what Bitcoin did we are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films to our live events, and they're even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. So I'm really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. Now, if you want to find out more about Iris Energy, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is dot yco Next up, we have Leaden. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach as they don't actively trade or invest in defile yield generation. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They're also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Leden is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to Leden.io, which is L-E-D-N dot Also today we have Ledger. Now Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. Now, if you're still holding your Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time to take your security a little more seriously, because as you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign a Bitcoin transaction with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, it couldn't be easier. I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I'm still using the same device I bought back then, and I absolutely love their products. Now, Ledger is running a promo right now. If you buy a Ledger Nano, you can get $30 back in Bitcoin, and this offer will be running until the 18th of April. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. So... I'm curious, um,
0: when that happened in Israel, what happened to the markets? Because I would assume that a lot of the money kind of fled the country. But if that happened in somewhere like the U.S., where that money can't flee the country, like what happens in the markets in that situation? If you look at the Israeli stock market, it was like, really? You know, it looked like it looked like the Venezuelan Argentinian stock market, you know, which is up in local terms. I don't know if they had capital controls on at that time. Um, I should be more well, well versed in that uh if we if we look at it today through this lens then all of a sudden when you start hearing things like operation Shokepoint 2.0 um that starts to look you know to me operation Shokepoint 2.0 there's a political angle which I'm not in favor of them doing that just but I don't want to talk politics but from as i just put on my you know objective historical hat it starts to look like, I mean, look, if I was in charge of the US economic policy and they came and they said, Luke, we're gonna have to inflate 100% a year for two years where we try, you know, we tried to inflate a little, inflation got big, a political problem, then we went the other way. Now we're having these treasury market problems. We're gonna have to inflate it. But what, What? you know, we can't allow, We we can't put in capital controls but we also want to control things in a way so that we don't look too bad, right? We, we, want, we don't want things going up that make us look bad. You know, so if the stock market goes up a ton, there's not going to be any Americans going, oh, you guys are terrible. The stock market's up 100% a year for three years. Like they'll, the pe- people will love that. They won't ask a lot of questions. If Bitcoin goes up 500% a year for three years, or if gold goes up, a year for three years, there starts to be more questions. So when I look, when I think about where they are, when I think about this framework of they need to inflate away and by delaying the inflating away as much as they already have, they're increasing the odds. They need to do a really compressed period. And then I look at operation choke point 2.0 of gosh, it sure looks like they're trying to chain the theater doors before they light the joint on fire. Uh, to me i think there might be some informational value about where they are starting to see the inevitability of where policy is going to have to go which is a compressed period of high rates of inflation and i don't know if that's a hundred or if that's 20 or you know again for me a hundred a year is still a tail risk but that tail has gotten meaningfully fatter over the last two three years um You know, for me, Choke Point 2.0 within this starts to look like a capital control of an asset class that you would not want, that certain elements of the government would not want going up uh, as a result of what they're doing or what they're going to do.
1: Yeah, because I considered uh, Operation Choke Point 2.0 more of a control, but I didn't think it so much in terms of a capital control. That's fascinating. Okay, so so we've experienced quoted inflation in the UK. It's about up to about 10, 11%. I think the US reached close to 10%, didn't it? I think it, it got into double digits. Did right? It got double digits. We all know realistically it's been higher. Um, certain things have been, I mean, energy in the UK has been, well, I mean, up, up to 100, 200% energy price inflation, yeah, we've seen people have their energy prices double or triple. So we, we've we seen masses, m- m- we've seen high inflation here, we've seen it in the US, we know it is much higher. So I, is it what you're saying is that this kind of like 10 to 20% could continue for a few years, but there's a chance they might squeeze in some high double digit, potentially triple digit? And And what you're saying, could that happen in the next two, three years, or do you think it's a bit further down the line?
0: I, I think my base case is that they are going to try to keep it in the double digit range without letting it get away from them, but I think that is an increasing risk. I think it's going to be over the next two, three years, really. um, And we may get this sort of deflationary whoosh in the very short term. I think you're seeing symptoms of it. you know, from a credits and lending standpoint, if you read the history books on a lot of the great inflations, they almost all, there's a quote. I wish I know who said it to me. It's not one of these famous ones um, that you can sort of Google and find who said it, but I've had it said to me a couple different times, but it's deflation is the midwife of hyperinflation. And that's not to say I think we're going to hyperinflate, but these great inflations are ultimately driven by sovereign insolvency and deflation and sovereign insolvency are fundamentally incompatible and so they want to get inflation down but they're not gonna be able to get it down enough um if they get it down too far then they can't pay their interest their entitlements and their defense bill out of tax receipts and then given the choice between defaulting on target treasuries in the case of the u.s slashing defense spending in the u.s or slashing entitlements in the U.S., which right now are already at, the three of them are like 110% of receipts and and rising, Uh, then they have to print the difference. Uh, And they can try to crowd out the banking system, right? They can regulate the banks into buying treasuries, which they did and until that blows up. Oops, that's already blown up. They can regulate the domestic sector into doing it, but here too, that simply increases the deflation because I can buy a car or I can buy a treasury bond portfolio. I can't buy both. Um, And so if I buy those from the government, I start detracting from consumption. I detract from consumption. I detract from tax receipts. That means the amount the government needs to either borrow from me or print over rises, not falls. And so they're into this loop. uh, And and in this conversation of inflation, deflation, deflation has been the only thing or excuse me, inflation has been the only thing keeping receipts high enough so that they don't have to print. And now with inflation coming down, you can see it in the numbers and the receipts the receipts are falling below these things, these uncuttable things. And that's why I say deflation is the midwife of, I won't say hyper, but a bit of high rates of inflation is now they face a choice. You want to call up Zelensky and say, Hey, sorry, our tax receipts stink. We're, we're pulling out, have fun with the Russians. And Oh, by the way, Taiwan, we're we're going to pull back there too, because we can't afford it. Or is the Fed going to print the money? It's the going to print the money. Ultimately. Uh, right now we're in this sort of, you know, stage of, Hey, you know, the American people and the American banks, well, we're starting to realize the American banks aren't going to finance the government anymore. That was sort of 2013 to to about two months ago. Uh, that suddenly the, the, the folly of that is suddenly, um, beginning to be realized that that was not a permanent solution. So now it is American people or the fed financing us, us deficits. So this deflationary impulse just accelerates this whole game.
1: Hmm. So, do you think? Do you think they're going to end the hikes, and do you think we're going back into QE then? Uh,
0: yes, uh, I think ultimately the U.S. fiscal situation is going to force them to end hikes first, and in some way, shape, or form, you can already see, you know the btfp program Mm -hmm. that is essentially a yield curve control light for banks right Mm -hmm. so the banks had these treasuries they were trading at 70 80 cents on the dollar and the Fed came in and said no that's not the price the price is par and we'll lend you the money to 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 at five percent and we'll value that collateral at par that is essentially you know bringing down you know bringing down the effective yield on those bonds. That's a yield curve control soft for the banks. Uh, Treasury has quietly, US Treasury has quietly been spending a lot of time looking at a treasury buyback program. Uh, And so it was really interesting. I, I pay very close attention to every quarterly release of the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee report. So there's a TBAC, Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee report a uh, Group of market participants meets quarterly and they make recommendations about all kinds of things to Treasury, you know, issuance You know how to the tenor long dated short dated expenditures what the market's thinking, etc It's a very useful document it gives you tax receipts. It gives you what they're spending it on, etc. How auctions have gone and so the one calendar one Q TBAC report kind of standard thing and there was nothing at the back of it. Recently, there was an update someone pointed out to me. I didn't see it on, on January 31st because it wasn't there. They amended it after the fact. There's a 38-page addendum that they amended after the fact to the 1Q-TBAC looking at, what they call it? It was a clear and regular treasury buyback program benefits or something like that, right? So it was, and it basically here too is we're not doing this to fund the treasury. We're doing this to maintain high-functioning treasury markets, and what we'll do is we'll we'll issue new treasuries that are more liquid. And we'll buy back off the run treasuries a little more liquid, and that'll bring the yield down a little bit. And from like that's the dog whistle. I mean, it's it's they can say whatever they want to say. It's a soft form of yield curve control. It is a soft form of QE. It's a soft man. Because basically, there's plenty of demand for the very front end stuff because that stuff's being used as collateral by the markets. Which you know, as you add leverage to markets, there's more demand for collateral, et cetera, et cetera. So they they've got no problem with that. Where they have a problem is sort of everything beyond seven years, where which is where they should have been terming it out a couple years ago. But that's because they probably couldn't. There wasn't the demand and the size they needed. Mm. My point in highlighting this, the BTFP and the 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 treasury buyback is i think they're moving towards they they know they have a problem they're not spending 38 pages and sticking it in after the fact for shits and giggles right this is not some academic exercise these are not academics these are people at blackrock and goldman and and like these are market participants and so They know they have a financing problem. This is a balance of payments problem in in the United States and the reserve currency issue of the world. And they're trying to address this while not going straight to QE, right? It's the old, what I've called trying to ride two horses with one ass, which is they want to maintain their credibility as inflation fighters, but they also need to finance the government. And those two things with debt and deficit levels here are fundamentally incompatible. The only thing keeping the government financed is the inflation they claim they need to fight. So they I do think they will stop raising rates. Maybe they do one more and then they stop, regardless of where inflation is. And then I don't know that they go straight to QE, but I think we I do think we will get increasing liquidity injections in the manner we've seen, which is it's not it's not QE, it's BTFP. It's not QE, they are regular treasury buybacks that are smooth, the functioning of the treasury market or something like that. Uh, They're liquidity injections, right? It's, you know, I'm reminded of the movie, The Fugitive, right? Where he's, you know, uh, Paris and Ford says, I didn't kill my wife. And Tommy Lee Jones says, I don't care. You know, to me, I see all these, these economists saying, this isn't QE. It's, and I say, I don't care. It's, it's, it's inflationary. They're injecting liquidity, trying to preserve the functioning
1: of the treasury market. So, just thinking back to what happened with Israel, because we often think of high inflation as being catastrophic to uh, catastrophic to people living there. I mean, I've, I've spoken to people who live in Lebanon. I've been I've been to Venezuela. You know, I've seen the impact uh, on people. Uh, it's catastrophic. But as you said with Israel, you know, it's a great country to visit. It's got a successful economy. You know, it seems a fairly wealthy nation. Is there a, a way of running high inflation? Uh, but consumer prices and wages are able to keep up with inflation. And therefore, you know, most people, you know, outside of people who hold large savings, most people are able to kind of ride through it. And it really is just the bondholders that get screwed or did anyone else get screwed in Israel? Because it doesn't seem to have been a catastrophic to Israel as I've heard it is in other countries. Say, for example, Argentina, their inflation levels have been catastrophic to people.
0: It was sort of the denouement, and again, I'm not as well versed in it as I should be. Uh, there was a long period of time leading up to this compressed period of very high rates of inflation where very consistently you had deficit spending. You had, uh, unions with a lot of power, public unions, with a lot of power. So you had sort of this inflation wage spiral dynamic. Um, and I think this was finally just sort of the ultimate denouement to that sort of span of 20 years, not that different than what we went through in the U S right. Just less extreme, right. Where we sort of went through 60s 70s and then there was sort of the spasm of last little inflation and finally bulker's like enough right i'm taking it to 15 percent and and we're going to stomp it out and that's what they did there too uh in terms of the social impacts i would have to say it's probably it would probably be much more akin to the argentinian and venezuelan experience in america and a lot of the in a lot of europe than in israel where i think there's a number of re you know israel's a, a smaller economy uh it is it is uh uh um it is more um uh, what's the word i'm looking for uh, um you know uh it's it's more monocultural than the united states or than the uk or than western europe uh i think there is a greater sense of togetherness in in you know everyone has to serve in the military in in israel right so there is a sense of uh togetherness and commitment to there in a smaller country uh that is more sort of uh, um uh monocultural than i think we would see in western europe and in in the U.S., so I'm not sure. I'm not sure we could do it without some fallout politically. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, uh, from a domestic standpoint, um, like like you get the sense happened there.
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting time because what it is is based on the things you're saying, I'm able to start connecting some dots here you know, uh, anecdotally, um, I just bought a bar, right? And I've gone in and given all the staff a 20% pay rise. I think they're underpaid and I'm able to do that. And I'm also able then to raise the price of the drinks, which pays for it. And also raise the price of the drinks to cover our new energy costs. So we are able to swallow our increase in prices. And we're also able to cover that by raising our prices. And it all just kind of like it just all kind of works out. But I also know that it becomes a lot more difficult, say, for the government when they're getting wage demands from certain unions. So we're seeing a lot of strikes now from the ambulance workers. Uh, we're seeing it with UK doctors. We're seeing it with people who work on the trains. And these are brutal negotiations with massive strikes. So the kind of strikes we've not seen before. Uh, UK junior doctors at the moment have demanded a 30% increase in their wages. That's a massive increase. But in fairness to them, they've probably experienced close to that level of inflation over the last two years. And I don't know where their increase will come out. I think the nurses just got, was it, about 11% and got some backdated pay. But we're starting to see massive pay rises from people who work within the government sector we're also seeing a massive increase in prices. So that was why I was kind of asking the question, because we're starting to see that. Now, it will never be an even pattern loop through everything. You know, certain companies can raise their prices, certain companies can't. Certain people can have an increase in their uh, pay. But I, I wonder how it nets out. My, my suspicion is, is that it will all eventually net out, but those who hold assets will benefit more, and we will see uh, an increase in the wealth divide um, and... That will put a lot of pressure on families, but that will also put a lot of pressure on the government to support those at the lower end, which probably means more printing.
0: It you know, and there's two things I would say. So here, most of our mortgages are fixed rate, right? So it's an interesting dynamic of a debt jubilee, right? So if we see if doctors go go up 15% here, uh cost, you know, get a 15% wage hike their mortgage doesn't move, right? So they're still paying 3% mortgages. So they've literally just gotten a huge debt jubilee on their biggest expense uh, throughout most of this country. And they're 30-year fixed in America. Most mortgages are 30-year fixed. And my understanding is that's not the case in the UK where there's five-year fixed and then, and then things can reset. Even lower like,
1: I'm on a two-year fixed.
0: On a two-year. Yeah, so that makes it trickier. And that ties into the second point, which is... We frequently hear um, this case. Well, America can't have a way an inflation spiral or a period of really high inflation because he owes, it owes its debt in its own currency, and it can always print that. And for the debt portion, that's absolutely true. But Social Security, we're paying a ten percent cost of living adjustment. I want to say it's nine point seven percent for twenty twenty two. That is, so there's that has a cost of living side to it, right? But even then, we can understate that. The Medicare-Medicaid side of the U.S. entitlements, those are not owed in dollars. Those are owed in health care goods and services. That is no different than a foreign currency, effectively, right? So, you know, you don't owe. The U.S. government does not owe. I want to say that. So between Social Security, Medicare, and all entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, some of the other stuff, uh, this year will be $3 trillion or about 65% of tax receipts. Wow. So, yeah, huge number. And the health care side of it, is not owed in dollars it's owed in doctor's time and to your point you start getting doctor's time the dollar's collapsing against doctor's time the doc- the dollar's falling sharply against hips and knees and you know uh medical centers etc uh in the west and so that's where you can when i say whatever this hundred percent odds were you know this 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 um odds of really high inflation for a compressed period of time, whatever they were two years ago, they've gone up. You know, there's a very far out tail risk. That tail risk is getting fatter because you can see clearly how this could happen, right? Where you get another 8% cost of living increase. Boom. And oh, by the way, the government's interest expense is going up because the Fed, paradoxically, by raising rates, is actually, there's no functional difference between the U.S. government printing up $500 billion in stimulus and handing it out to the people, and the Fed raising the U.S. government's interest expense by $500 billion and paying that out. The only difference is who it goes to. The $500 billion goes to everybody, and the $500 billion uh, billion stimmy goes to everybody. The $500 billion interest goes to the wealthy. And so it's very um, uh, um, uh, non-progressive, right? It's very... uh, uh, (laughs) very uh wealth wealth increases the wealth divide so but you can see how this can happen is it is very much and i say this with a big asterisk because i don't this is not my base case but it's people say well yeah the weimar republic in germany hyperinflate because they had these war reparations and the war reparations were were not in reichsmarks they were in they were tied to gold and so the more reichsmarks they printed the more the reichsmark fell against gold the more they went up and 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 wash rinse repeat until it became obvious they could never pay it and then we're in sort of that same position where we don't owe dollars we owe healthcare goods and services and the more inflation goes up to address the debt the part that we will print because we want to avoid defaulting on it that leads to higher inflation but that then leads to higher cost of living adjustments and these things that are not denominated in dollars they're denom- they're either cost of living adjusted or they're denominated in healthcare goods and services and that gets into this very, uh, for lack of a better word, dangerous dynamic, because in this case, the doctors have a lot of leverage. Mm. Doctors just say, fine, you know, screw it. I'll go work at Peter's bar. You know, I'll make you <laughs> here in the U S after the last 30 years, what's happened to healthcare. You know, we've got, you know, plumbers making $350,000. And I have a friend of mine who's, you know, a uh, oncologist and hematologist with 25 years of experience. And he's probably not making that much money. And that's not to say i devalue plumbers relative to oncologists and hematologists all i'm saying is is that uh there's a lot of runway there's been a misallocation of capital for so long into different uh, trades labor markets etc uh across the government spending now you're sort of stuck you need to reallocate stuff and there's 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 no easy answers
1: This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io, And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right now. I'm a hodler, I'm not selling, we're in a bull market, but I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I've been stacking stats through this bear market. Now, both the app and website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry leading security since day one. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Slash WBD. Also, today we have Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi 2.0 makes privacy effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join like you had to in Wasabi 1, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can send privately. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. Also, you get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no more change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously, and Wasabi 2.0 makes it so much easier. To find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T.io. God, so I'm now starting to think any cash I'm holding in savings in the bank, I need to find another use for that money because that's going to inflate away, but I think holding, having a house or maybe if I could afford a second house, that might be a good thing because with inflation, the value of the house will rise, but then I'm also like, well, what, what happened with interest rates in Israel during that period? Do we know?
0: I don't know. I'm assuming they were capped in some way, shape, or form, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, because otherwise people wouldn't be able to pay their mortgages. Um, But I am starting to think about, like, how I'm partially protected against inflation, I consider, because I have a a significant holding of Bitcoin. But I'm not protected against inflation with savings. And, I mean, I'm, I'm asking this about me, but I'm really saying, Luke, with your experience... As somebody who understands markets. What you do for work? How do you, how are you preparing yourself for a potential world of high double digit digit inflation for a couple of years? How are you protecting what you have?
0: So when I first started thinking about some of these types of issues, I mean, gosh, you know, probably a decade or so ago, with you know, with with the first rounds of QE, etc you you see the famous you know you go right to the most famous example of Weimar Germany, currency goes to zero and you start reading about it and you quickly realize it's not apples, it's not exactly the same. there's political differences and there's there's the diversity of the economy, you know, the America in particular can produce pretty much everything we need at the right price, right so, oil prices in America went up 10x from 9, 2000 to 2008, and voila, we're the biggest oil producer in the world a few years later. Like that, you know, it's, the dollar collapsed against the oil and then we produced a lot more oil. If the dollar collapses against something in America, we're probably going to produce a lot more of it by virtue of our diversified economy, our landmass, natural resource endowments, et cetera. So that's something, you know, in the UK to think about is, is okay, you don't have the land mass, you don't have the natural endowments. There is more of a risk of where the inflation won't spur production. It will simply spur an inflation spiral. And there's a lot of other countries that you'd expect that to happen versus in the UK before. But it's really a, a statement of diversified economy versus non-diversified. Um, the, the other sort of thing that I've learned more recently as it relates to this, and particularly in the context of bursting global sovereign debt bubble and then the overlay of this peak cheap energy dynamic is you frequently see these great inflations, you know, and, and I'm gonna again I'm gonna use the Weimar Germany one because it's well known and it's so extreme and it wasn't a developed economy. And and you see the churn. It's like, okay, in nineteen eighteen the Reichsmark was at a hundred dollars, you know, a hundred, you know, 100 uh, Reichsmarks uh, per ounce of gold, and by 1923, it was at a trillion. Like, the currency just went away. And you say, oh, well, that's easy, right? I wanna borrow a bunch of money, and I wanna buy a bunch of gold, and then, you know, in 1923, I wanna make sure that, you know, when gold, you know, when a city block in Berlin is going for one ounce of gold, I just start swapping gold for, you know, I pay off my debt, and then I start swapping gold for city blocks in Berlin, and and voila, I, I win. and The reality is, is not that easy. Um, what really happens is face peeling volatility. And so there's this great chart I've shown in our research before, uh, it's been on Twitter before, uh, it's by Dan Oliver at Mermican capital. And it shows sort of that classic, Hey, here's gold in German Reichsmarks, And it's this beautiful, uh, hyperbolic asymptotic line to a trillion in five years. And then he overlays the month over month price of gold in German Reichsmarks from 1918, 1923. And that is an absolute bloodbath where literally it's like up 50, down 50, up 50. And you, if you borrowed a bunch of money and bought gold and hoping the gold was get rid of your debt, the reality was you lost all of your money probably four or five times. You got margin Gosh. called out, gone, all your capital's gone uh, before you got to that end game payoff. And why did that happen? When you read the history books of it, it's such a political process of, okay, they owe this money. Okay, there's a negotiation. The, the Allies are gonna write it down. Oh, yay, buy the Reichsmark. Okay, or, or this, the, the, the German central, you know, the, the, the Bundesbank is going to, or the Reichsbank is going to uh, raise rates and defend the, the Reichsmark. Okay, I wanna sell gold and buy Reichsmarks. And like, so I bring this up by way of saying, I think it's really important that this volatility we've been seeing in things we're not used to seeing it in, in the developed markets, FX, rates, right? I mean, last summer we saw the British pound trade like a Latin American currency. Uh, We saw the euro do the same. We saw the yen do the same. Um, And then it was the dollars turn in the fourth quarter, falling 11% a quarter. we're gonna see this type of FX volatility. We obviously saw it in Bitcoin and you know um, they, that type of volatility uh, and then in rates as well, I think you're gonna see that. And so the point here is, is that I think it's critical to understand it's going to be face peeling volatility. And so you need to be diversified understanding that there is a path and the path doesn't look like this. The path looks like this to this high rates of inflation. And number two, you want to be underlevered because you don't want to be wrong for the right reason, right? You you don't want to get carried out on your shield because you borrowed too much money. What well, we'll look into, you know, you know, pigs get bad, hogs get slaughtered. Is something my dad always tells me. Yeah. You know, pigs get bad like so. For me, the way I'm playing it, I actually have twenty. We came in, came into the year, told clients we have twenty-five to thirty percent of our net liquid worth. Nick, my my liquid net worth. In U.S. dollar cash and short-term Treasury bonds, uh, I had probably I think I was said uh, thirty to forty-five percent in a combination of uh, gold, Bitcoin, and some gold miners. Uh, we own industrial equities. Uh, we own some energy-related commodities. Um, we own some real estate again here in the U.S. It's residential. You know, I, I bought uh, a vacation place. Uh, after i paid off my house and you know that is a a low levered you know basically i mean not basically thanks to what the fed did with mortgages i've got a 2.9 percent mortgage on it i can make five right now in money market funds right so i'm a bank i'm making positive carry uh on 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 a on a on a on a second home so uh conservative leverage diversified cash bitcoin slash gold neutral reserve asset energy industrial equities when you have a peak cheap energy dynamic you're going to move away from discretionaries towards needed needed things right so it's you know in the companies you own it's going to be you you know things you need over things that are discretionary and then good balance sheets over bad balance sheets i think is the way to get through this and to be clear like when the liquidity is there it good balance sheets are going to underperform bad balance sheets and vice versa but with the volatility, what you what you're trying to do is avoid getting carried out, right? The bad balance sheets might not survive. We've now seen that, right? Like mm. SVB and Signature Bank, they got carried out, and
1: like, sorry, you got zeroed out. Have a good day, um, Danny. Who was the guy we had in who came in from San Diego into New York? They, uh, bit, about what? So he said. He said, I think it's a bit similar to you, yeah, but I think his was th- a, like a third cash, a third equities, and a third, oh, what was it? Was it even property? Possibly. I don't know. who. Yeah, about. he said the same. He said he just does, I can't remember who it was, but he did, remember the New York run we did? Mm. Not the last one, the previous one. Um, were you even, uh, I can't remember if you not were Not Peter there. Doyle. No, not Peter Doyle. Oh, I can't remember his name. You might find him. But um, yeah, he, he said the best way is not to try and trade through these times, is to is to just have a diversified portfolio and just make sure that if a market moves in one way, well, you've got a bit of that. You know, if... if Ca- you know, if cash increases, you got a bit of that. It's not something I've done. I'm like, I'm, look, look, I'm balls deep in Bitcoin, fingers crossed. But, <laughs> but it is something I'm starting to think a lot more now. You know, it's just starting to protect myself into, you know, far riskier times. So it's definitely something I'm going to need to think about. But I'll probably have a bit of US dollar cash, a bit of British pound <laughs> thrown in there, a bit of Bitcoin. I think it's time to get some gold, Danny. Yeah. And I've never bought equities in my life and it's possibly a time to get some equities.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, you know, there's a um, one of the wealthiest men in history by percent of the economy at the time was a man named Jacob Fugger, F-U-G-G-E-R. I think he was, he was Dutch. Uh, anyway, the point is, is that he had a allocation where it was 25% cash, 25% gold, 25% stocks, 25% real estate, and then just reallocate. And it, you know, through tumultuous times, you know, you sort of recover. Right? You know, you, you did every, everything everything is covered because really you're just trying no one alive has ever seen what we're going through. Uh, the combination of what we're going through plus the scale of what we're going through. Um, you know, energy availability has historically for the last 150 years, been a story of more at a cheaper price and now we're getting more at a more expensive price. And that is, that changes everything. That is nature's discount rate. Uh, as effectively right so that's that that's your true cost of capital they can tell you rates are what they are but the real cost of capital is what's your energy cost and you know you're seeing that there in the UK right where you know if your energy bill doubles that changes behaviors that discounts other ac- other economic activities in a way that have nothing to do with the Bank of England so um, it, I think it's really important to have that balance um, and just you know balance some leverage but not not a lot and fixed rate because, um, it can act as an inflation hedge, particularly in areas like here where we can figure, you know, if I, you know, to me, terming out a mortgage 30 years at 2.9%, like that's a layup, especially if they're going to pay me five on my cash now, which is, you know, it's great for me. And it wasn't great for, for Silicon Valley bank or signature
1: bank, but it's great for me. It was Cullen Roche. Uh, I think he was on the 20. I think it was like 20. I think it was exactly what you just said there. What? 25% real estate, 25% cash, 25% equities. And what was the last one? Commodities.
0: I said 25% gold. And I would, when I say gold, I would, you know, personal preference, gold, Bitcoin. But there's, yeah, there's, you know, some sort of blend in there. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm not going to reallocate while Bitcoin's on the rise right now, but maybe, uh, maybe I'll call the top like you did and sell a bit off. Okay. So thinking about this, this kind of Catastrophic. Well, the situation that potentially become catastrophic. Do you is this related? To, I know you're, you've followed um, do you you follow geopolitics. Do is this related to the kind of de-dollarization, this move away from the dollars, the global reserve currency that we're seeing from the likes of China and Russia? And I know there's some. Ukraine war stuff that can probably be thrown into that as well anyway. But is this just basically smarter people in the room who need to understand this at the sovereign level within these nations who've realized what's happening and that's why they're exiting the dollar?
0: Yeah, for, for the de-dollarization of commodities is largely defensive in nature. It is an existential threat to them to get away from the dollar monopoly in commodities. And the reason we say that is, can be laid out most easily. Kyle Bass gave an interview, I don't know, about four years ago, which he said, listen, the Chinese, they're buying more and more oil. Uh, They're importing more and more oil. They're consuming more and more oil every year. And that oil is only priced in dollars. And so as oil gets more expensive and they consume more of it, they're going to need to have more dollars every year just to keep their economy going or else all the debt they have, their economy will implode, the debt will implode, you'll have a huge crisis. And Kyle went on to say, but they only have a finite number of dollar reserves. And so as oil rises and their consumption rises and at some point they're going to run out of dollar reserves and then they're going to have a 1997 Southeast Asia crisis, where they run out of reserves to buy oil, and either they have to shrink their economy in the economic crisis, or they devalue the yuan, or whatever, you know, then you have inflation, it's crisis. So ultimately, for China in particular, on, on one side of it, and, and some others, it is a matter of national security for them to gain the ability to import their energy, at least partially, in their own currency. And they have done that uh they've done that with russia they've done it with venezuela they've done it with a number of other nations that if you look at this was back in 2018 data and that's uh the iif uh iif data if china had bought all of their commodities in yuan then 2018 their their trade surplus in dollars would have risen by 800 billion dollars right so they'd be billion, they wouldn't have had to have put out in commodities, uh, because they were printing up yuan. Now, you know, there's a recycling issue. We've highlighted a number of times that we think they're recycling it into gold, uh, and uh, goods and gold. Uh, but the point here is, is that that 800 billion is probably a trillion or a trillion and a half now, given more volumes they're about importing in commodities and higher prices. So, china cannot have the dollar crisis that a lot of yuan bears are saying if they just start moving some of their oil import bill their commodity import bill into yuan every you know if it's a trillion trillion and a half in aggregate every 10 percent that they shift their commodity bill out of dollars into yuan increases their annual dollar liquidity every year permanently by 100 to 150 billion dollars they're not going to run out of dollars and so if they're not gonna run out of dollars, that means they're not gonna have those crises. And the flip side of that is means they don't need to buy as many treasuries. It means the intensity of their FX reserves per dollars goes down. So in 2013, China's FX reserves as a percent of China's GDP was 46%. By 2018, that number was 26%. That number is now 18%. And it's going lower because again, they can buy marginal tonnage of commodities in yuan, not dollars. That turns around and puts pressure on the U.S. in terms of just the treasury market of foreigners don't need to buy as much. On the flip side of that same coin, Russia, you know, Putin said this in in June of last year in a speech that was, of course, ignored across most of the U.S. Uh, He highlighted that the U.S. has the real rate on on treasury debt, negative 8%. And where do you get that number? If you look back from 2008 to present, U.S. Treasury issuance has rose by 8% per year, has risen 8% Kager. The yield on the 10-year Treasury has barely ever been above three. So basically, like I would love that deal. Like If you guys want to give me that deal, let me know. I will issue you 8% more IOUs every year, and I'll pay you 3%. And I'll use part of the 8% more that I borrow every single year from you to pay you back yours. And then this it's a Ponzi scheme, and he has finite oil. Like, he has finite oil production. We don't know what that number is, but it's finite. We heard that when people said, "Well, if he doesn't reinvest, oil production is going to fall." Exactly, he has finite oil production at some level. He cannot afford to stockpile his wealth in a reserve asset like treasuries, where the supply rises eight and the coupons three. He would have to be an idiot, and he's a lot of things, but an idiot isn't one of them. So he he started buying gold as his primary reserve asset 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, some of that was in response post-13 in response to the original sanctions, etc. But the point stands, which is both of this, the, this de-dollarization dynamic from both sides of this coin are really the sovereign version of what we let off talking about, which is peak cheap oil, peak cheap, cheap energy and global sovereign debt crisis. Uh, they, they are addressing this by by shifting to multi-currency energy pricing, settling in goods, and then settling net deficits in physical gold whose price floats in all currency. Now, could Bitcoin be that reserve asset at some point down the road? Yes, it could. Mm. Is it there yet? In my opinion, no, because you've got this status quo system and if there's going to be a transition in the system, it's probably going to go through gold first, which requires a much higher price of gold. Uh, that's a separate discussion. But yeah, this whole de-dollarization thing is ultimately all about sovereigns making an enlight- a decision in their own enlightened self-interest. It's basically a matter of acute national security that they get away from pricing their commodities, because otherwise their commodity bills go up 100-200%, and you know they have they have the same problem, except in those places people don't sort of... yeah, you know, The political outcomes are more extreme, shall we say.
1: And so, obviously, this movement away from the dollar being a global reserve currency is is going to exacerbate issues for the US for their own currency but is there an argument that this is net good for the world because it takes the pressure of other nations with a rising value of the dollar makes all imports a lot more expensive especially for smaller countries yeah, we've made shows discussing this you know when um, when the U.S., for example, during COVID, printed stimulus checks, none of those p- reach people in uh, El Salvador who are a dollarized nation. But you know, you don't even have to be a dollarized nation with everything priced in dollars. If you know, it makes it difficult for other countries. So, can you make an argument that a de-dollarization, yes, bad for the U.S., but good for the world? I would even
0: go a little further. It's okay. it's good for the world, right? When we talk about all the debt is owed in dollars, if you want to stimulate growth the easiest way to do it is reduce the debt burden, right? Give the world a debt break. How do you give the world a debt break? You reduce the value of the dollar, right? So the dollar falls, the debt burden of the world falls. I would go one further and say, it's good for the US. If you look at the, it's just not good for the part of the US that has won the last 20 years, the last 30 Hmm. years. Who's won the last 20, 30 years in the US? It hasn't been the US. It's been China, Mm -hmm. it's been Wall Street, and it's been Washington, D.C., certain interests in Washington, D.C. Those have been the winners in the U.S. Everyone else has lost on the net, basically. We're all just, you know, it's Washington's world, you know, to, and there's seven of the 10 wealthiest counties in America around Washington, D.C. What does Washington, D.C. export to make all that money? Simple, treasuries, they export dollars. They don't make anything. Uh, so if you look at the winners in the U.S. over the last 20, 25 years in particular, you can make the case even stretch out the last 35, 40 years, the weaker dollar, and 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 the loss of treasuries. I think the dollar is going to stay the reserve currency, but I think we are we are ten years into the treasury by losing its status as the primary reserve asset to gold de facto. We can see it in the data. Central banks have bought three hundred billion in gold. They've sold four hundred billion in treasuries in the last eight years. Uh, that switch is already well underway. It accelerated meaningfully last year. Uh, that is a world where if gold at a floating rate is the neutral reserve asset again, then suddenly currencies will trade on a balance of payments basis around gold, right? Basically you, if you, if, if you are settling net settling in gold, then you're going to run deficits like the U S and the U S and UK run the biggest deficits, U S first UK second, uh, your currencies are going to fall sharply against gold. And at the same time, China, who has been sort of manipulating this dollar system in a mercantile way, they're running this big surplus. Their currency is going to uh, uh, strike them meaningfully through the gold link, right? So the price of gold will fall in China because gold's going to flow in that direction. Gold falls in China. Yuan rises against the dollar. China suddenly has to consume more of their own production. They've been talking about becoming more consumption-oriented forever. Well, to become more consumption-oriented, you have to be able to print your currency per energy, check, and then you just need your currency to strengthen relative to your imports. Check. Same, same side, side here is if we need a rebalancing in America, what does it take? Set up a neutral reserve asset. The dollar needs to fall dramatically. That's going to increase uh, inflation in the US dramatically, but it's going to increase production at the expense of consumption. And it's going to rebalance the economy away from Washington and Wall Street towards more productive enterprises. And at the same time, that falling dollar, remember, like we just said, it reduces the debt burden globally. So there's going to be more global demand uh, as the global debt dollar debt burden falls. So like literally the falling dollar is great for everybody except for certain Washington interests, certain Wall Street interests, uh, and certain Chinese interests. Uh, so I, I, I think we're moving in that direction because people say, well, we couldn't afford the wars. We couldn't afford the military. Well, yeah, not at eight hundred fifty billion a year. but like if you talk to most u s military officers on down, they for ten years, they've been telling you this is unsustainable. We need to get out of this, you know, what like we need to we need to reinvest into more productive enterprises such as infrastructure, education, um, you know, et cetera. So, I would argue a much weaker dollar. And, and the process that is already underway by a you know, much weaker dollar by moving from treasuries being our primary reserve asset to gold at a floating rate and all currencies being our reserve asset really good for the USA. It's just not really good for, you know, the, the <laughs> USA that are whispering into the anchors' ears at CNN and, you know, MSNBC and, and Fox and, and what have you. Yeah, I mean, it's it It's a really... We, it's, it's a monumental time and there's a lot of different ways this can play out this can end really really happily this can end really really painfully um and there's it can end sort of a whole range of outcomes in between those two extremes which unfortunately both have fat tails based on debt geopolitics etc so no i feel like we've had a pretty pretty wide-ranging conversation across uh, to highlight that
1: yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, Luke. I'm really, really glad we did this. So good man, Danny. Um, I still want to interview one day in person. We will find a time somehow. We'll come to you.
0: Uh, yeah, I, yeah. that's, you know, once my last kid's out of school, I used to get over to the UK twice a year. So, yeah. um, you know, pre-COVID. So, and we do, my wife and I do absolutely love London and, you know, outside of London. So, and we, we've never made it up north. So we want to. We want to get over there and spend some time, so we will be over
1: there at some point. We're only we're only forty minutes north of London, so it's not too far. Oh, beautiful! And uh, we got a football team you can come and watch over here. So,
0: oh, we we, we would love that. It's uh, uh, they do serve pints there, right, in the stadium. Of course. We, I mean, the, st-
1: the stadium is a stretch. I mean, we're we're a non-league <laughs> team, but yeah, we uh, you no, know, we sold a, yeah, we won the league yesterday, so we sold a lot of beer. Oh, congratulations! That's terrific. Yeah, so we sold a lot of beer. Me and Danny, our heads were a bit sore this morning, but most of the beer was <laughs> sold to me. Yeah, we'll get them up. All right, Luke, where do you want to send P? Where, where can we help you?
0: Uh, you know, you can find us at uh llccom dot our website on information about mass market and institutional product offerings and. People can always find me on Twitter. I'm at at Luke Grohman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. Pretty pretty active feed, as as you guys both know.
1: Yeah, definite follow. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Luke.
0: Well, thanks for having me out again. I really
1: enjoyed our conversation. Okay, I really am interested to hear what you think of that one. It kind of set the tone for the live events and the interviews I did with James Lavish, Lawrence Lippard, and Jeff Booth here at Bedford. Um, and I've been trying to think, how do you how do you even prepare for a scenario of 100% inflation? Because it is a possibility. And I've been thinking about buying a little bit of gold. I've thought about this a few times, but I'm really starting to investigate it now, just as something else to back up my Bitcoin and my cash. Anyway, I'd love to know what you think of this. So please do either drop me an email hello at did.com or jump into our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid.